Alrighty, well, I am super enthusiastic to share this message this morning because today's a biggie. We're coming into land with our series or our journey about strongholds. Uh, I'm going to do one episode today and then Quentin and Nikki next week are going to be speaking into the area of depression as a stronghold. To suffer and to live in a family with someone who struggles, how do we cope, how do we trust God for breakthrough in that area? So that's how the journey is going to end next week. But let me remind you quickly what a stronghold is. Remember, a stronghold, when the Bible speaks about that wanting to break enemy strongholds, strongholds are literally ideas or thoughts or arguments in your head that has a strong hold over your behavior. In other words, when you look at your behavior, if any of your behavior is outside of the will of God, it's because your thinking is still outside of the will of God. We'll never change our behavior until our minds have been renewed. And sometimes those thoughts are powerful. Sometimes we've grown up with different thoughts or ideas or arguments that now have a strong grip over our thinking. You thinking it would be you, you, you would think it would be easy to just change the way you think, but actually it's not. It requires the power of God. In fact, it says in Romans 12, verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's a reformatting of our thinking that has to take place from the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. God's desire is that we would live in his good will, his pleasing will, his perfect will. But to get to that, we have to allow God to break old thinking and thought patterns that have a strong hold over our behavior and allow him to transform us. Does that make sense? Hopefully, if otherwise you haven't been listening for the last couple of weeks. Today I want to talk about... A particularly lethal stronghold, which is rampant in the church around the world, and one that absolutely robs saints of the freedom and power of the gospel. And it's a sneaky one because it disguises itself in Christian lives. I want to talk about the stronghold of self-righteousness, which manifests itself in our lives as a religious spirit. In other words, sometimes the people you think are the, oh, the strongest Christians because they pray the biggest prayers and they go to the most church meetings and they actually, they might not be living in freedom. They might be victims to a stronghold that actually is robbing them of God's life and power. And so we're going to be trusting God this morning to demolish the stronghold of self-righteousness and, and a religious spirit, and I'll explain that as we go. But let me give you an idea of what I'm talking about. <clears throat> I've been to, on two trips to Pakistan now, and it's been a huge privilege to preach the word of God there. But I've never been in a nation that's got such a strong religious spirit. In other words, it's like, this is, this is not the freedom and joy of Jesus. This is, there's something missing here. Now, I went into a couple of their Christian schools, they do have a few Christian schools, and it's a long story, but as I went into them, what I noticed in all of the schools was every single day, all the pupils recite two things. They say the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments. Now, I suppose that's a good thing. I mean, Lord's Prayer, I can fully understand that. Jesus said, this is how you should pray. But why the Ten Commandments? Why are you teaching all the kids? Because from a very young age, isn't it important that they know right from wrong, they know how to please God because these are God's laws. Here's the fruit of that. Kids grow up with this thinking. These are God's rules, and to be right with God, you follow the rules. 
I remember as a, as a teenager, I grew up and there was something inside of me that was drawn to God. I, I felt a void. I felt an emptiness inside of me, a sense that there must be more. And I was drawn to God, searching for answers, searching for truth. But up to that point, all my experience of church and assemblies when they, when they talk about God and SCAs and camps, all of them had left me with this impression that to become a Christian meant subscribing to a set of rules and regulations. And, and as much as I was drawn to God, I kind of felt repelled from church because yo, I don't think I could live like that. It's just like too many rules and they're like heavy. And then I remember one day, and I've shared my story many times, when, when I heard the gospel preached, and in that moment, remember when David was fighting Goliath, and he sent off this little stone, and that little stone, bam, plugged itself into the forehead of Goliath. In the same way it felt that, that this truth, as, I, as this guy was sharing the gospel to me, it felt like, bam, into my head, knocked out this stronghold. And I realized in that moment, you see, the stronghold is, is that surely it's rules that make us right with God. But then I realized, no, as he preached the gospel, it's not rules that make you right with God. It's a relationship with Jesus that makes you right with God. And that seems like such a simple little thing, but if you haven't made that discovery, if that revelation hasn't dawned upon you, if that little David Stone hasn't plugged into our thinking, then so many people get trapped on this side. Surely rules make me right with God. And so that's why you get these Christians sometimes who, yes, they sing about Jesus, but they really focused on the rules, on the rules, on the discipline, on their behavior, on their performance, on this religiousness of doing all of these things, because surely rules make you right with God. And today I'm trusting God that that stronghold is going to be smashed. And so let me take you to some scripture and explain. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, This is Jesus speaking, and he said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Thank you, Jesus. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now I want to have a look at verse 20 with you. Why don't you throw up verse number 24. I tell you that unless your righteousness, say your righteousness, unless your righteousness surpasses, surpasses means is even greater than, is even more than that of the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees were the paid professional righteous people. They did everything about their lives was perfectly in line with the law. Ask a Pharisee to turn on a light on the Sabbath day, he'll say not a chance because that would be work and you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. Every single little thing they do is in line with righteousness. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Unless your righteousness is even greater than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Say yikes. In other words, if you are thinking that rules make me right with God, then we have to understand how right with God your rules have to make you. Because your right with God based on your rules has to be even more than the Pharisees who dedicated their whole lives to doing everything perfectly before God. 
That word righteousness simply means right with God. The actual definition, it says what is right, just, the act of doing what's in agreement with God's standards. It's the state of being in proper relationship with God. And Jesus says the requirements, if you want to get into heaven one day, if you want to experience eternal life with God and abundant life with God now, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness has got to be greater than the Pharisees. So, why? Why is this so important? Why is God such a stickler for, really, Lord? Well, it says in Psalm 5, verses 4 to 6, it says, for you, talking about God now, for you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. The bloodthirsty and deceitful, you, Lord, detest. Say yikes again. Okay, this is our God. And then in verse 12, it says, Surely, Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. I want to remind you today, our God, our loving God, hates wickedness and blesses righteousness. This is our God. Our God hates wickedness and he blesses righteousness. So now we've got a problem. You see, we need righteousness to be right with God, to experience eternal life for all eternity, and abundant life right now. Now, got to do a little bit of history for a moment. In the Old Testament, before Jesus was born, that's the first half of the book, or first two-thirds of your Bible. In the Old Testament, there was only one way to achieve righteousness. Remember, righteousness is important. God hates wickedness, blesses righteousness. You only enter the kingdom through righteousness, but there was only one way of achieving righteousness. And that way of achieving it is called self-righteousness. In other words, here's the law of Moses. Those who obey the law will be considered righteous and will be blessed by God. More obedient equals more righteous equals more blessing and favor of God. However, there is a problem. And I think you might agree with me. In Romans 3 verse 10, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Secretly look at the person sitting next to you or just like cast an eye, like not one, not, not that person. Not, and, and they look squeaky clean. I mean, they look like shiny. No, no, no. Not one is righteous. Isaiah 64 verse 6, it says, all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We will shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Here's the big idea I want us to grab hold of. If you're holding on to self-righteousness, surely rules make me right with God. And so if I'm holding on to my self-righteousness to make me right with God, I want you to have a very clear understanding. It's not enough. It's not enough. Our righteousness, because it says no one is righteous, and it says your very attempt, your right, what you think, surely God, you must be so proud of me, filthy rags in his eyes. Sure. Self-righteousness is not enough and will never be enough. How then, dear God, are we supposed to obtain this level of righteousness so that we can enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm so pleased you're asking that question. 
Romans 1 verses 16 and 17. Paul said this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel means good news. This is why the good news is the good news. Because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God. Say of God. Remember just now I got you to say your righteousness. Now this is the righteousness of God. This is not your righteousness. This is not your self-righteousness. This is not your efforts. This is the righteousness of God has been, is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The good news about Jesus, the gospel of Christ, is that there is a new way of obtaining righteousness. Old Testament, there was only one way. Rules make you right with God. The New Testament, the good news of Jesus, is there's now a new way of obtaining the righteousness of God, which is much greater than our self-righteousness. So Romans 3, verses 19 to 26. It says, Now we know that whatever the law says, Ten Commandments, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. We've got to get this, because this is huge. In other words, then why, God, did you give the law? If we're never going to be able to achieve the law to get self-righteousness, why did you give it to us? Well, the purpose of the law is not for you to achieve righteousness, but for you to realize you need saving. Let me say that again. The purpose of the law was not so that you could achieve your own righteousness, but so that you could come to a realization that you need a savior. That your efforts and hard work and attempts at being right with God based on rules will never be enough. Does that make sense? This is such an important thing. This is the foundation of our gospel and our belief in Jesus. The big idea, the purpose of the law was never to make us righteous, but to make us realize that we need a savior. Our attempt at self-righteousness actually stands in the way of us receiving God's righteousness. Now, here's a big scripture. I want you to follow on the screen carefully. Romans 3, 21 to 26. Paul says this, but now, now speaking about from the time of Jesus, apart from the law, in other words, it's got nothing to do with the rules and regulations, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given, say given, Remember, self-righteousness is earned. You have to do the work of the rules. You work for self-righteousness, but this righteousness of God is given. Now I've lost my place. Aha, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely, forgiven by His grace, through the redemption, the purchasing that came by Christ Jesus. 
For God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, a payment, through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, in other words, his patience, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. I know that's a powerful scripture and there's lots in there, but here's the big idea. The gospel declares that there is now a new source of righteousness. God's righteousness is given as a gift to those who demonstrate faith in Jesus. Are you hearing me? You see, what's the stronghold? What's the religious spirit all about? It's when someone hasn't yet realized that my self-righteousness will never be enough. And so because they're still thinking rules make me right with God, they'll spend all of their church time and hard work and demands of this and demands of that trying to build up their self-righteousness and it looks so Christianese and wow, they're so devoted, they're so strict, they're so disciplined Actually, they've got a stronghold. Now, I'm not saying when you understand this, we don't serve God. In fact, when we realize we've been given this incredible gift of made right with God, that's what actually changes us and makes you want to spend the rest of your life radically serving this Jesus, radically loving one another and giving our all for him. Jesus lived a righteous life And so God used his, remember only one, only Jesus fulfilled all of that law. So now we get his righteousness, his perfection given to us because of his sacrifice. God used, Jesus lived a righteous life and so God used his righteous life as a sacrificial offering to pay for our unrighteousness. This is the demonstration of God's righteousness. And so now we get to choose. And I want to ask you this morning, have you made that choice? faith in your own ability to get right with God or faith in God's righteousness on our behalf. We cannot earn his righteousness by works. We only receive it by faith. Can you say amen to that? Paul was, the apostle Paul we read about in the Bible, was probably the second most righteous person, Jesus being ultimate righteousness. Paul was absolutely radical in his attempted righteousness. But he came, that little stone, stronghold broken, happened in a moment when he got a glimpse of the righteous standard of Jesus' life. And when he came to Christ, that stronghold was broken, and he came to this incredible realization. In Philippians 3, 4 to 9, Paul speaking, he says, I myself have reason for such confidence, confidence in my self-righteousness. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, in other words, my ability to serve God and be right with God, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. In other words, his CV, his credentials of self-righteousness were impeccable, highest order. Verse 7, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, garbage. All that hard work, religious effort to please God, I need rules, make me right with God, garbage. 
that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from laws and rules and rules make me right with God. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul was super righteous, proud of his religious righteousness until he met Jesus. Until he saw the righteous one and then he realized all of my righteous religiousness to please God is like filthy rags and garbage. So what's the stronghold? It's when we put our confidence in the flesh. We put our confidence in our own ability to please God based on our performance. I want to give you four quick examples of the kind of thinking that self-righteousness produces in us. Maybe you might recognize some of these thoughts in yourself. Example number one, well, as long as my good outweighs my bad, I'm sure I'll be right with God. It's kind of like a scale. You know, as long as I've got 51% good compared to my 49%, okay, not so good. As long as the seesaw tips this way, surely I'm right with God. Well, I suppose... It depends on how you see righteousness. Evil Knievel, he was that stuntman from years ago. His son wanted to do what his dad never got right. He wanted to ramp his motorbike over the Grand Canyon. I have not been to the Grand Canyon, but I've flown. I've seen it from 30,000 feet. It's big. He's going to ramp his motorbike over the Grand Canyon. Now, let me ask you this. When it comes to ramping a motorbike over the Grand Canyon, how much is enough? Surely, as long as he got 51% of the way over... No, 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 no. In fact, 80% not good enough. 99% is not good enough. If you're going to ramp a motorbike, which he did, he accomplished it, crashed on the other side, but he got over. If you're going to ramp over the Grand Canyon, you need 100%. Righteousness is not 51%, 49%. It's 100% or zero. Are you righteous before God? As long as my good outweighs my bad, that's a stronghold right there. Here's another one. As long as I've suffered enough for the sins I have committed, I'll be right with God. In other words, there's this sense that actually there's some people who welcome into their lives a form of punishment because I deserve it, and God rather deal with me, and as long as I've suffered enough, I know why I'm suffering. I know why I'm sick. I know why things have gone wrong because I've been bad in the past and as once my suffering, once my punishment is done, then I'll be right with God. So many people live right there. And that's rooted on self-righteousness because you're still judging by, I need to get right with God, so punish me now, Lord, so that I can be right with you. Suffering will surely save me. No, it won't. Here's another one. Compared to others... I'm, I'm a good person. I mean, look at that person next to you. I mean, come on. As, surely as long as, as long as I'm in the upper 50%. You know, I mean, I look around. I, mean, I can understand rapists, murderers. I can, they should go to hell. Yeah, yeah. But I'm kind of quite good, generally. Everyone has their vices, let's be honest. But so in your mind, now you're thinking morality will save me. As long as I'm in the upper half, I surely I'll get into heaven. Or the fourth one, which is so common, surely my religious effort will save me. I mean, surely when God looks at me and sees how early I get up in the morning to pray, how many Bible verses I, how many Bible verses I've memorized, hello, 
I mean, I pray late at night, I go to all the extra, I give money to the church, hello. I mean, surely when God sees all of that, righteous. means these are all tentacles of the stronghold of self-righteousness, which manifests as that religious spirit in our lives. I heard a story of a woman who's lost her husband, but before her husband died, she had six children. And the youngest was just born, and they were incredibly poor, and left by herself without a job. Somehow, she's got to make money now, raise these six kids, and she wants the best for them. So her whole life, she dedicated herself to giving everything to raise these children to give them the best life. She literally worked her hand to the bone during the day working to get just enough through money to put food on the table to get them in school, to get them through their homework, to get them, to get them, to give them the best start. And eventually she got sick and was about to die and a pastor went to visit her in hospital and she says to the pastor, I mean, says to the pastor, sorry that I didn't come to church, but if you knew the kind of life I lived, Sundays were not a day off. Sundays were a day I was working noon to night, I mean morning to night, giving everything for the good of these children. And let me tell you, I'm sure when I stand before God, maybe in a few hours or days time, I'm going to raise up my hand and I'm going to show him the scars. I'm going to show him the, 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 the calluses. I'm going to show him I gave everything for these children that you gave me. I cannot believe God would turn me away. What would you say to that woman? <laughs> The wise old vicar, he says to her, sorry, you're too late. He says, what do you mean, sorry, I'm too late? He says, no, no, someone's already got there and already showed God his hands. And his hands have got holes in them and are covered in blood. If I was you, lady, I would rather put myself in his hands than trust in your own hands. That beautiful story. Whose hands are you trusting to save you? Are you trusting one day? Look, surely, Lord, I gave it my all. Will you be standing there? No, no, no. I know. I know I'm not worthy. But I put my hand, my trust in the hands of my Savior. Amen? So, one of the toughest sins to deal with is self-righteousness. I mean, I can understand we need to repent sexual immorality and bitterness, all of those things. Ooh, ugly, repent. But you know what is one of the ugliest sins? Standing before God, trusting in our own self-righteousness. That's one of, or if not the ugliest sin of them all. How many of you know the story of the prodigal son? It was a father who had two sons. Jesus told the story. And one was outwardly wicked. Took his inheritance. Dad, I wish you were dead. I want to take my money. And he goes and squanders it on worldly living. But is eventually convicted of his sin. Comes back humbly and says, Father, I've sinned. The other brother in the story is different. He says in Luke 15, verse 25, Meanwhile, the oldest son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed and fattened the the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But now when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father says, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. You see, 
That self-righteousness produces an arrogance inside of us or a condemnation inside of us. Arrogance if we think we're doing well, condemnation if we think we're doing badly. And angry when we see God being gracious to others and just forgiving others. What do you mean you can just say a prayer and God forgives you? No, no, we should be earning, working. I want to ask you today, truly, have you made this transition? Have you broken out of the thinking where rules make me right with God to that place of, no, no, it's my relationship with Jesus that makes me right with God? I want you to realize today just how lethal this self-righteous religious spirit is because it hides in the church. It manifests in what we sometimes think are the most radical Christians. No, no, who are you trusting? You're trusting in yourself, confident in your flesh, trusting in your religious works, or is your faith in the hands of the one who paid on our behalf? Can you say amen to that? Why don't you stand with me, please? Let's close our eyes for a moment. The thing about the righteousness of God is it humbles you. Self-righteousness makes you proud or makes you feel condemned and worthless. But to receive the righteousness of God paid for by Jesus on the cross is very humbling. That's why he says God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. I want to ask you in the quietness of your heart right now, have you humbled yourself and in faith realized that your hands, your work, your effort, your morality, your suffering, your religiousness is not enough? And if that's where you're pegging your faith, I want to warn you before God that will never be enough to get you into the kingdom of heaven. Or have you humbly accepted the gift of the righteousness of God. Heavenly Father, we stand in your presence, humbled by the incredible good news of the gospel. And Father, some of us need to repent this morning. Some of us need to confess before you, Lord, we've been either getting proud by our own religious effort or live in condemnation for our failure because as much as we try, we've realized rules can't make us right with God. And Jesus, we humble ourselves before you. To all of those who received him, Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by yourself. This is a gift from God. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Some of you right now need to let go. Let go of trusting in yourself. Let go of that condemnation and put your faith and trust in Jesus. Come Holy Spirit. I'm praying just like David who who flinged that stone and brought down a giant. Right now, will you bring down the stronghold of self-righteousness? Come Holy Spirit. Thank you Jesus. Unblock that well. Let the life and power of God the gift of the Holy Spirit be given now is that it is an unblocking when, our, when our, our trust shifts from ourselves onto Jesus, just like that, a river begins to flow. River of life, gift of the Holy Spirit, forgiveness of sins, life forevermore. Let the river flow, Lord. Let the river of your righteousness flow 
Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.